0: I am Mother Minerva, curate at St. Michael's Episcopal Church. This is the third episode of a limited podcast series talking about the Book of Common Prayer. Last week, we went through the contents of the 1979 BCP and gave a quick overview of each of the sections to explain how they fit together to create a comprehensive liturgical resource for worship in every context. Today, we will be spending some time going more in depth into the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist is the central act of worship of the Church as it has been understood by most of the Church's history. Since the very beginning, when Jesus commanded His disciples to do this in remembrance of Me, the disciples never failed to incorporate the gathering around the table with bread and wine into their worship life. It is difficult to say exactly when the first formal liturgies for the Eucharist started being used in the Church, but there is evidence that by the 3rd century Common Era, Christians had already formed liturgies that would be recognizable to us as a Eucharistic service. As we mentioned last episode, the BCP contains two orders for the Holy Eucharist, Rite One and Rite Two. Although there is no major structural or theological differences between the two, we will make an effort to point those out when it is relevant. Otherwise, we will be using Rite 2 as our map as we explore the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. The liturgy begins with a set of instructions that give the bishop the prerogative of being the presider over the table when they are present and the priest, who are present, may assist. The deacon or deacons and laypersons are also assigned roles. The deacon reads the gospel and sets the table. The laypeople read the lessons and present the offerings of bread and wine, and may assist in serving the elements to the congregation. From this first portion, we can already see a dense underlayer of theological significance in the way the service is arranged. The Holy Eucharist is meant to be a dramatic reenactment of God's work of redemption in the world. So the ordering of who is responsible for which part of the service embodies the way in which God has ordered the creation into a web of relationships and responsibilities that we must do together if we are to offer God a worthy sacrifice of praise. The rest of the service is divided into two sections, the Word of God and the Holy Communion. These are the two most basic concepts in the service, but they can be a little too broad to cover without getting tangled in long descriptions. Instead, we can look at page 400 in the section offering directions for celebrating the Eucharist in non-traditional settings that breaks down the service into smaller sections. These are as follows. The people and the priest gather in the Lord's name, proclaim and respond to the word of God, pray for the world and the church, exchange the peace, prepare the table, make Eucharist, break the bread, share the gifts of God. We already talked about the significance of having the people and the priests together in the act of worship. So let's continue to the next part, gathering in the Lord's name. In most Holy Eucharist services, the gathering begins with a hymn psalm or anthem being sung. Singing is an extremely effective tool at uniting a collection of people who are coming to worship with their own daily lives and concerns on their minds into a common purpose. Songs are also very effective tools for conveying information in a way that our brains can handle much more easily than speech or text alone. We can sing the lyrics of a hymn and simultaneously engage intellectually with the truth that we are speaking emotionally with the tune or the feelings these words evoke in our hearts, and spiritually by setting aside all differences and joining together in a single voice to praise God. After a song, there is usually an opening statement of some sort that helps to both indicate a solid boundary between the ordinary time in which we exist outside of worship and the new, sacred time that we are inhabiting while we are in it. Following that there is usually a prayer such as the Collect for Purity. You know the one, Almighty God, to you our hearts are open and all desires known, that one. While the BCP rubric states that the celebrant says the prayer, many churches, including ours, have the whole congregation say it together since it is a prayer for the preparation of our hearts in order to worship God in the way God would desire to be worshipped while acknowledging that we cannot do that without God's help. Now that the stage is set with a gathering song, an opening statement, and a prayer in preparation, there usually is another song of praise, like the glory and excelsis, before the section is brought to a close with a collect of the day, which is a prayer that recognizes and locates a particular worship service in the church's calendar, giving context for the rest of the service's tone. For example, in Lent, the collects are penitential, In Easter, they are joyful and full of praise. In Pentecost, they are passionate and missional. Next, we come to the proclaiming and responding to God's Word. In most Christian traditions, this section includes the explicit public reading of Scripture. At a minimum, it will include a reading from one of the Gospels. In an Episcopal service, it will most often include lessons from the Old and New Testament, as well as a psalm. Then a deacon or priest will read from the assigned gospel. Again, depending on the context, the gospel reading is usually preceded by a sequence hymn where the deacon will process to the middle of the congregation with a cross, torches, and incense to symbolize the coming of Christ as the light of the world and the word of God incarnate to dwell among us. When the full entourage is present at the procession, the light of the torches, the reader's voice, the smell of the incense, and the congregation moving to face the cross is meant to engage most of our senses in order to make the experience of listening to the gospel one that feels all-encompassing in our human sensory experience." Even when all the items are not present, the simple act of changing the pace of the reading is enough to attune our senses to the significance of the words we are about to listen to. Following the Gospel reading, there is a sermon or homily that is meant to give the congregation a more in-depth understanding of the scriptural text that applies it to the actual situation of the congregation. While the sermon may include many elements of oratory skill, like a framing device or metaphors or illustrations, and it may be uplifting or educational or even challenging, these elements should always serve the higher liturgical purpose of the sermon. This section ends in a response to God's word, which most often takes the form of reciting the Nicene Creed together. The Nicene Creed is preferred to the Apostles' Creed because of its plural form, we believe, which is meant to symbolize the corporate faith that we hold as a church and not an individual affirmation of orthodoxy. It is also the creed that we share with almost every other Christian denomination, which carries a subtext that every time we affirm the creed, we are uniting into a single faith despite our earthly divisions. The next portion of the service is Praying for the World and the Church. In Rite 1, the prayers to the people are read by a deacon or a layperson followed by a response from the congregation after every prayer. In Rite 2, there are six litanies that are provided to fulfill the rubric's directions to pray for specific things, which we will cover shortly. The six forms of the prayers to the people vary in their structure. Some have a versicle and a response, others have a prayer followed by a repeated response, Others still have silences where the congregation may offer their own prayers, either silently or out loud. All six of the forms contain the following intercessions. For the universal church, its members, and its mission. For the nation and all in authority. For the welfare of the world. For the concerns of the local community. For those who suffer or are in any trouble. For the departed, and when appropriate, the commemoration of a saint. The last one can mean either a saint who has recently passed in the congregation or a saint whose feast day is being celebrated. After the prayers of the people conclude, the celebrant closes with a collect and then directs the congregation into the confession of sin. Except for Christmas-tide and Easter-tide, that is the 12 days of Christmas and Easter week, there are also some services which include the confession of sin earlier in the service, so it would be skipped here if that is the case. Once the congregation finishes confessing, the priest will proclaim God's forgiveness through the absolution. The exchanging of the peace is the shortest section in the service in terms of content, but that isn't always the case in actual length. While most American churches have the congregation share the peace with their neighbors and maybe a few adjacent pews, there are other churches, particularly those of different cultural backgrounds, where the peace is exchanged between all the members and it can be very lengthy. The exchanging of the peace is meant to be more than a folksy greeting between the people in attendance. It is an opportunity for people to make amends with one another. It also symbolizes the peace and solidarity between the people of God. The Liturgy of the Word follows a pattern from God to humanity and then from humanity to God in the reciting of the creed and the prayers of the people. And it ends with the people interacting in the peace of God. The BCP's rubrics include instructions on how to end the service here if the Holy Communion is not to follow due to circumstances like the ones we talked about in Episode 1, with a shortage of clergy to celebrate communion in post-revolutionary America. The next major section of the Holy Eucharist service, the Holy Communion, begins with the preparation of the table. Although we have grown accustomed to thinking of the offertory as the monetary gift placed in the collection plates during the anthem, the offering that is being referred to is more inclusive than that. During this time, the bread, the wine, and the monetary collections are placed on the table as a symbol of giving back to God the fruits of the earth which God has given to us. It also implies that aside from the physical and spiritual preparation of the table during the offertory, we are offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, our gifts, our time, our worship, and our lives. Following the preparation of the table is the making Eucharist section. Eucharist is derived from the Greek word meaning Thanksgiving which is meant to express how the worship service as a whole is a response in gratitude towards God for the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. This section includes the prayer titled The Great Thanksgiving, where we put into words what we have been doing in the service so far. You can think of it as a scene in the Charlie Brown Christmas movie where Linus gets on the stage and begins to tell Charlie and the other kids what the meaning of Christmas is. And just like that scene, this moment is the climax of the Holy Eucharist. We have now done the work of worship, and now we enter into the rest of God's completed creation. The opening words of the prayer affirms this change in tone. The celebrant reminds us that the Lord is with us, and then exhorts us to lift up our hearts and give thanks to the Lord our God. This opening exchange between the celebrant and the congregation is one of the most ancient traditions of the church, with sources documenting it as early as the 2nd century Common Era, only a single generation after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In his book, For the Life of the World, Alexander Schmemann, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, describes the Great Thanksgiving as a moment when the celebrant stands in the place of Christ to the congregation and as a representative of the congregation in the heavenly court. Schmemann likens the moment as a coming together of heaven and earth a preview of the eternal life that awaits us in the new creation. This point is driven home with the inclusion of the Sanctus, the hymn which the book of Revelation tells us the angels and archangels sing in endless praise before the throne of God, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord. The Eucharistic prayer in Rite 1 continues seamlessly from the Great Thanksgiving going on to retell the gospel narrative of God's creation, the fall of humanity, and God's redemption through the work of Christ. The four Eucharistic prayers in Rite 2 follow the same basic structure, with the only difference being which aspects of the gospel narrative are given more attention. Eucharistic prayer A and B are fairly simple in that they stick to the high points of the narrative we just mentioned, And Eucharistic Prayer D contains a much more detailed and lengthy exposition of the story of salvation. Eucharistic Prayer C, which is sometimes lovingly called the Star Wars Prayer, contains a lengthy portion describing the cosmic majesty of God's creation in the universe, the stars, and the planets. This prayer is actually derived from a Byzantine rite, which is still used in the Eastern Orthodox Church today. All four of the prayers serve to create the holy sense of wonder that Chmemen describes in his book. Immediately following the salvation story is the Consecration of the Elements, where the celebrant will place their hands over the bread and wine and invoke the Holy Spirit to sanctify them to be the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. During the consecration of the elements, all Eucharistic prayers contain language that makes an explicit connection between the communion we are about to make and the heavenly banquet that awaits in eternity, further strengthening Schmemann's view of communion being a window into eternity. As we mentioned in episode 1, our BCP contains a mix of theological language that makes it hard to pin down an exact theology on the nature of the body and blood of Christ. This ambiguity is by design. After all, remember that the BCP was written to keep Protestants and Catholics worshipping together and happy. So while some portions of the consecration seem to lean more towards a view of transubstantiation, that is, the view that the bread and wine change into the body and blood of Christ, other portions lean more towards a memorialist view, that is, the view that the bread and wine are symbols meant to memorialize Christ's sacrifice for us. When taken together as a whole, the sacramental theology of the Episcopal Eucharistic Prayers seem to shy away from making definite statements about the details, but strongly affirm that we believe Christ is mysteriously present in the bread and wine through God's Spirit, and that in taking them we are partaking in Christ's body and blood. Another element that is consistent throughout all the Eucharistic Prayers is the use of the words of institution— That is, the retelling of the story of the Last Supper, as Jesus gives the disciples his body and blood. After the words of institution are read, the congregation participates in the act of remembrance by stating a summarized version of the Eucharistic prayer in what the liturgy calls the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And after the celebrant adds a conclusion to the prayer, the whole congregation once again comes together to pray the Lord's Prayer. But before we think the Eucharist is too fantastical in its heavenly vision, the next section, the breaking of the bread, brings a touch of humanity back into the liturgy. We break the bread so that we can share it. After saying a final statement affirming the sacrificial nature of Holy Communion, the celebrant then turns to the people and proclaims that these are the gifts of God for the people of God before beginning to share the bread and wine with the congregation. As each congregant receives the sacrament, the one servant will say the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation to each congregant to continue to maintain the sense of holiness in the act of receiving Communion. Our rubrics also allow an alternative statement to be said, the body or blood of our Lord Jesus Christ keep you in everlasting life, which serves the same purpose but is more catholic leaning statement that hails back to the middle of the road approach of the BCP. Although the sharing of the gifts is the final section we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I would like to add one more section that isn't listed but that truly ties together the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. Going out as God's people. After communion is finished, the congregation will pray a post-communion prayer, followed by a blessing from the priest or bishop and a closing hymn, before we are dismissed out into the world. In Schmemann's book, he calls this portion of the service the time of mission, because he views it not as the end of the heavenly reality we've experienced in the Eucharist, but the beginning of a new week of bringing heaven into earth as we go back into the world. When we view the going out as God's people portion in this light, we are able to comprehend how it is the Eucharist changes us, and how God turns back our worship towards us to mold us into a people that can represent Christ to the rest of the world.